Father in heaven, I pray that each heart and each mind that comes here today would be open to the full inclination of your spirit and that you would anoint these lips of clay to speak your words of truth and love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, true and false salvation. Now that's not what the actual title was. The actual title is what we're also going to be speaking on, which is self and salvation. Those two words are a little bit related. You know, sometimes we say salvation. And uh, actually, of course, they come from two different root words. Um, salvation comes from that word salve, so it has a healing quality to it. And uh, the relationship to self and salvation is key. Today we're going to be talking about the two emotional attributes necessary for salvation. Did you know that there are two emotional attributes? Yesterday we talked about emotional intelligence and leadership. First day we talked about general intelligence and some with EQ or emotional intelligence. But there, as I study the scriptures and I, as I study more into regards to the mind, and by the way, the servant of the Lord says, we need to learn everything we can about the human mind and about human nature. It actually helps us to understand those things. Uh, there are two emotional attributes that surface as necessary for salvation. Now we have a human dilemma. The human dilemma for fallen human nature is lack of self-control. How many of you in this room have occasionally experienced that emotional attribute of lack of self-control? Okay, we do have an honest group here today. And uh, the Bible also uh, describes this. Romans chapter 7. If you have your Bibles today, you might open them to Romans the 7th chapter. This was not an issue unique with you. It has also been present in other very um, intelligent human beings like the Apostle Paul. Verse 18 says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. This is describing the human nature aspect of lack of self-control. We know what's best for us, but we're not doing it. Or we know it's best for us not to do it, and we do it. He goes on. Verse 20, now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. In other words, my conscience says this is good, and I would delight to do it. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity, the law of sin which is in it, my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, he exclaims, who will deliver me? from this body of death. Oh, wretched man. Now some people have mistakenly viewed Romans 7 as the process that will continue in all of us, even in a saved relationship. But Paul gives us some significant clues that that is not the case. In fact, it's overwhelming evidence. One of those clues is the term, oh, wretched man. 
Did you know salvation is not wretched? And in fact, the, the Bible term wretched is only mentioned one other way, one other time. Where is it mentioned? It's in the church of Laodicea. The church of Laodicea thinks that they are rich and increased with goods, but they don't know that they're what? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Those terms are not describing those in a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. They're not. And that's why we're counseled to buy the gold and the sap of salvation. Well, the human capacity to exhibit self-control. This is a quote from several studies. I looked at several studies on the psychological studies on self-control, but this was one. Human capacity to exhibit self-control is one of the most, if not the most, powerful and beneficial adaptations of the human mind. This is from the Journal of Personality. To exhibit self-control, one of the most powerful, if not the most beneficial adaptation of the human mind. According to a recent review by Baumeister and colleagues, self-control failure is central to nearly all the personal and social problems that currently plague citizens of the modern developed world. Let's take a look at just some of them. Heart disease. Did you know that we know enough today that if we would put into practice what we know, 90% of heart attacks, at least 90% of heart attacks could be avoided. Heart disease should not be the number one killer. It shouldn't even be in the top 10 diseases if we just put into practice what we know. So what's the problem? Is the problem the heart? The problem is the mind. And where's the problem in the mind? Lack of self-control. And so it is with many diseases. Diabetes is too much energy in and not enough energy out. It's pretty basic. And so we need to increase the energy out and then decrease the energy in. And if we're not able to do that and we understand it, where's the problem? It's self-control. Murder, self-control. Rape, a problem with self-control. Other crimes, in fact, I would estimate that if it wasn't for problems of lack of self-control, 95% of the prisoners would not be there. Now you say, well, what about the other 5%? The other 5% are there due to false accusations. Uh, they were exhibiting self-control, but they were accused of not exhibiting self-control. Financial failure. The financial failure we're experiencing in this country on a corporate level, as well as financial failure on an individual level, is simply due to lack of self-control. Drug addiction. Self-control problem. And this is a new one, techno addict. What is a techno addict? A techno addict is someone who's in a social environment, maybe even in that important family environment where there's a family occasion, but instead of their participating in the live social interaction, they're in a corner texting somebody else. That's one of the clear symptoms of techno addicts. And by the way, we could go into a whole uh, uh, a study today in regards to the consequences of techno addiction. It's not positive. Unwanted pregnancy. Did you realize that over half of women who have babies in this country under the age of 30 are having them out of wedlock? Majority of them under the age of 30. 
And if we take a look at healthy relationships, only one out of four children are being raised by both biological parents. So even if you were uh, married at the time, chances are you're not going to be raised by both biological parents in this country. What's the problem? Lack of self-control. Abortion. We know it's a major problem. Let's get to the root issue. Lack of self-control. Sexually transmitted diseases, major problems in the top 10 causes of death in this world. Lack of self-control. Divorce is really an issue of lack of self-control. Here you are swearing and vowing before a whole group of people that you will love this person until you die. What happened to that promise? There was an issue of self-control problem, at least in one of the partners, unemployment. Most cases of unemployment are simply due to people not performing adequately in their job. And one of them is just a very simple thing, showing up on time or showing up at all. If you're not showing up on time or not showing up at all, what's the problem? Lack of self-control. Maybe the night before and lack of self-control and being able to get up in the morning. Or you are not paying attention at work and you're losing concentration and focus and you're not uh, useful to your employer. What's the problem? Lack of self-control. Alcoholism. And it's not just divorce. Any major relationship problem often is due to lack of self-control on at least one, if not both, individuals. And this is just a partial list of the problems that are caused by this. Now, when we speak of self-control, we need to resurrect an old term. And by the way, it's becoming a new term. You'll see this uh, being raised now in the psychological literature. What is temperance? Temperance is moderation in things that are healthy and abstinence in the things that are unhealthy. Strict temperance requires comprehensive self-control. Now, in the book, Character, Strengths, and Virtues, this is a... uh, Uh, For those of you that want to study more about the mind, this is a great book to look at, uh, written by uh, Christopher Peterson and Mark uh, Seligman. They both are secular psychologists. They come purely from the secular standpoint, one from University of Michigan, one from University of Pennsylvania, and they review thousands of studies in regards to what they call the sanities. You know, the largest psychological book is a book of insanities. It's called the dsm 4 And they said, you know, instead of just looking at all the insanities and all the emotional problems, let's look at character strengths and virtues that actually cause emotional success. And let's look at studies on this. And so they break it up into six character strengths and virtues and then multiple ones under this. Wisdom and knowledge, for instance. Creativity, originality, ingenuity. Uh, Curiosity, which is interest. Judgment and critical thinking is yet another. Love of learning is another. Perspective or wisdom is another. Those are under the uh, strengths of courage called wisdom and knowledge. Then there's a strength of courage. uh, Then there is strength of courage itself. And that we talked about yesterday in leadership. Bravery, persistence, integrity, and vitality. And then they call this the strengths of humanity love. And then they, uh, the next one they break out is kindness, which they call empathy or altruistic love. 
then social intelligence, which also involves personal intelligence and emotional intelligence. And then there's another category, strengths of justice. This is social responsibility, loyalty, teamwork is under one category. Fairness is on another. Leadership is another. And now they deal with the fifth one. I'll have it this one on the screen because this is our topic today. The fifth one is temperance. And under temperance, they have four areas. Forgiveness and mercy. Have you ever thought of forgiveness and mercy being under temperance? It actually is. When we are temperate, we are going to be more tolerant. We're going to have that forgiveness and mercy aspect. Humility is part of temperance. Modesty. You show me an immodest person and I will show you an intemperate person. The solution to the immodesty in the world is temperance. Prudence. This, of course, has to do with practical things and in regards to uh, even financial prudence is part of temperance. And then the fourth one, what do you think is mentioned? Self-control. They also look at self-regulation. By the way, to complete the list in this book, their next one is strengths of transcendence. And that is appreciation of beauty and excellence. So awe, wonder, elevation. Under that category is gratitude. Another one, hope. Another one, humor. And finally, faith. Transcendence. And of course, they look at the studies that show that the correlation of significant positive things that occur in the lifestyle from this. So if you're speaking to a secular group about these types of things, this is not necessarily a bad way to go to bring this out. Now, I'm going to give you some quotes, not just from this book, but we've looked at multiple studies. In our endeavor to measure this class of strengths, this was Dr. Tangney's research and others from University of Macon, Georgia, we have found that among people in the mainstream United States, strengths of temperance are infrequently endorsed and seldom praised. So they recognize this is a very positive thing, but it's not given virtually any positive encouragement here in the United States. Regardless, they say, the strengths of temperance are very important and they have a rich array of positive consequences for the psychological good life. This is Character, Strengths, and Virtues 431. The most comprehensive study on self-control, there are several of them, involve first the measurement of it. They developed a measurement, it's actually a test, it's a 32-question test to measure self-control in individuals. I'm not going to give you all 32 questions, but I'll just give you an example of some of the questions that were asked. And you had to rate yourself as not at all to very much. And of course, you could do one, two, three, four, five. I am good at resisting temptation. This is a secular study. And what word is mentioned? Temptation. I am good at resisting temptation. Now, if you're very good at that, of course, you would put a five, not so good in the middle, whatever. I have a hard time breaking bad habits. If you have a hard time breaking bad habits, that's called the reverse aspect. They would put an R in front of it. So if you put a five there, you actually score a one when you're actually scoring it out. I do certain things that are bad for me if they are fun. Hmm. That's lack of self-control. I have trouble saying no. You have trouble doing that? Lack of self-control. Getting up in the morning is hard for me. You can see how many people at ASI have issues uh, with self-control. <laughs> I blurt out whatever is on my mind. If you do that, 
problem with lack of self-control. I spend too much money. Hmm, lack of self-control. I keep everything neat. That would be a positive aspect. I get carried away by my feelings. Lack of self-control. I do many things on the spur of the moment. Lack of self-control. I don't keep secrets very well. Hmm, lack of self-control. I often interrupt people. That's also lack of self-control. I am always on time. That is meticulous self-control. I'm not easily discouraged. That would be a positive thing. That would show self-control. I eat healthy foods. That's also positive. Pleasure and fun sometimes keep me from getting work done. Lack of self-control. I have trouble concentrating. That's lack of it. Sometimes I can't stop myself from doing something even if I know it's wrong. Lack of self-control. I am able to work effectively towards long-term goals. That's positive self-control. So you get an idea of this test. In fact, you know, one of the nice things of being an educator at Weimar is I think we're going to just put that test in there at admissions, you know, <laughs> uh, to, uh, to see what positive consequences can come out of this. We can follow it in the long term and then see how maybe things change as well. Uh, not that we're going to just accept people that score perfect on this uh, test. Well, hundreds of people took this test, actually thousands, and the scores were associated with multiple psychological factors. One took a look at this uh, and measured 32 personality traits, large study by Wolf and Johnson, and there was only one personality trait that predicted GPA. What do you think it was? Self-control. The only personality trait that predicts GPA. In addition, the higher the self-control in the study, the better the task performance at whatever task it was. So if we want to get good at something in regards to task performance, self-control is part of it. Another study showed the lower the self-control scores, the higher the rate of dysfunctional impulsive behaviors. Dysfunctional impulsive behaviors. The higher the self-control test scores, the lower the rates of eating and drinking problems. So in other words, less eating disorders, uh, less obesity, less alcoholism, etc. This is from Tangney. Another study looked at a different aspect. Those that scored high on self-control had better personality adjustment. They actually had higher self-worth. Now, this is very interesting, because they looked at self-worth, and, and I'll show you uh, uh, how they looked at it in, more, uh, in a more closer way. But they also showed that they were better at controlling their anger. They had fewer symptoms of somatization, obsessive-compulsive patterns. By the way, some people say, wait, OCD is a problem with too much self-control. No, it's not. It is lack of self-regulation. In fact, what is happening is there are things that are far higher priority that you are totally exhibiting a lack of self-control on to exhibit self-control on something of a lower priority. So we call it lack of self-regulation. And so the solution to that is actually dealing with self-regulation, part of the solution. Depression, much higher in those that lack self-control. Anxiety, hostile anger, phobic anxiety, paranoid ideation, and psychotic tendencies, all higher in those that lack self-control. This was just a recent study, as you can see, by two individuals. People with high self-control accept themselves as valuable, worthy individuals and are relatively able to sustain this favorable view of self across time and circumstances. 
So even though they have bad things happen to them, they still have that strong tendency to recognize the value of self. Now you say, well, that can, that can go too high, but they also looked at the other side. This occurred without registering inflated or narcissistic views of self, which tended to occur more in those with lack of self-control. People with high self-control are more conscientious. They're more emotionally stable. They make better relationship partners. In fact, the studies show if you are married to a person with good self-control, you have a positive marriage partner. It's a very positive thing. They get along better with other people. But they're also, even though they themselves have good self-control, studies show that they're more accommodating of others. Not less accommodating, more accommodating. They report more satisfying relationships, not just in the family, in intimate relationships, but their relationships in general are more positive. They have better adjustment in their relationships as well. So in other words, they're much more able to get along with difficult people. People with high self-control have better family cohesion, less interpersonal conflict, better perspective, and also, something I found interesting, better what? Empathy. So there's a link here between self-control and altruistic love or agape love. People with high self-control, it's amazing that the different aspects that they've looked at do not wallow in their own personal reactions to other people's problems. That occurs in people with lack of self-control. They have more secure interpersonal attachments, they manage money well, spending less, and saving more. This is still uh, in press. And now you say, well, here's the problem with self-control we're going to run into perfectionism. And perfectionism is a bad thing. Well, let me just take a look at the psychological definition of perfectionism. This is a psychological definition. I'm not talking about the theological definition. Perfectionism is the tendency to adhere rigidly to unrealistically high expectations or standards. And what do you think they did in this study? They looked at this to see if people with high self-control had problems with that tendency to adhere rigidly to unrealistically high expectations or standards. Perfectionists, they found out, exhibit problems with self-regulation in at least two ways. Self-regulation is, is a synonym for self-control. So people with this type of perfectionism actually have problems with self-control. They have difficulty modifying their standards in response to the nature and demands of a given situation. What is that talking about? Say you have to pass a licensing exam. And all you have to do is get a passing score. It's not like medical boards where if you score higher, you get a better residency. All you have to do is just pass. But instead, you study, you stay up late at night, uh, you do all sorts of, uh, of uh, things to try to get a perfect score, and all you needed was a passing score. That is perfectionism, and it's a problem with self-regulation. They also found out that those who are perfectionistic in this category have a strong link to procrastination. So perfectionists, according to the psychological definition, are going to have an issue with procrastination. When they looked at the studies, self-control scores were not significantly linked with perfectionism at all. So perfectionism was not linked with self-control. Now this was an interesting study, secular study again. 
And uh, notice the words that are used in this. This is a quote from the study. In the course of daily life, that should say, in spite of their best efforts at self-control, people inevitably sin and transgress, at least on rare occasion. Now, would we agree with that uh, premise uh, that's there? I think we can agree with that. But it's interesting that they're using the term sin and transgress. And they're not using that term lightly, like a lot of secular psychologists use it. Because they're studying self-control, and they recognize the value of comprehensive self-control. So they're using it in a solemn way. What they found is people with high self-control scores score relatively low in shame and high in shame-free guilt when they transgress. Now, what does this mean? Individuals with high self-control are inclined to take responsibility for their transgressions rather than externalizing blame or minimizing the importance of the transgression. That tends to occur in people with low self-control. They minimize the importance of it. In short, having done wrong, high self-control people are inclined to focus on the effects of their behavior and in so doing are inclined to what? Make amends. In contrast, low self-control individuals are more apt to experience painful feelings of shame, an emotion that often provokes what? Defensiveness and denial. If you have defensiveness and denial when you are confronted with your own transgressions, the psychologist will say there's a self-control issue going on. And if you do that, rather than repair and redemption, it's linked very much with low self-control. Then they looked at self-control and leaders. Those who have self-control and leadership are rated by their subordinates as more trustworthy, they're more fair, they're more consistent with other leaders, they experience less anger and better management of their anger when they do get angry. This is Cox's uh, study. Then they look at children with self-control. What they found out is that children can exhibit voluntary delayed gratification even at age four. And they looked at studies in regards to children having the, the uh, opportunity for immediate gratification or delayed gratification. And then they looked at those children over the course of time. Children at age four with better self-control have fewer behavioral problems fewer anger conflicts, they actually function better socially, they're more actually popular with other children, and on top of it all, this was a long-term study, they score higher on SAT scores 10 years later by exhibiting self-control at age four. This is Murphy and Eisenberg's work. Well, you might ask, you know, this is a comprehensive book. It looks at all the pros and cons. By the way, each one of those character strengths that I mentioned, they have a lot of pros, but there's a few of them that have some drawbacks. And they mention the drawbacks and the warnings on some of those drawbacks. So they looked at self-control. There's got to be some drawbacks of too much self-control. There are no scientific studies anywhere demonstrating any undesirable consequences of high self-control. In fact, Tangney tested for curvy linearity to see if excessive self-control or over-control might produce negative consequences, but no negative patterns were found. We do this in pharmaceutical studies with dose response. You know, we know there's an effect, but then as it gets too high, we know there can be some bad effects, or maybe the effect goes away. So they looked at curvy linearity for those that were scoring very high in this self-control thing, and they only found more positive things. So there wasn't any negative drawbacks to quotes very high self-control. 
Here's what they say, although in our society there may exist a stereotype of an over-controlled person, one who is overly restrained, cautious, uptight, and not spontaneous, we see no evidence that self-control is to be blamed for those things. In other words, there's other problems. It's not self-control that's to be blamed. Then they talk about the development of self-control. And this is a sad statement. Relatively little is known about how self-control is acquired and strengthened. They talk about all the benefits, wonderful benefits. And then they say, we need to learn how to develop this. Let's look at the studies on how to develop it. Now they say this, this topic must be regarded as a high priority for further research, especially in view of the many benefits that self-control confers. And so they're calling for studies on the development of self-control. They do say this in regards to development. Most acts of self-control involve overcoming some incipient response to the immediate situation in order to pursue some greater long-term benefit. Hence, the ability to transcend the immediate situation is crucial. So in other words, we have to be future-minded, have to have a frontal lobe. People who live only in the present moment are unlikely to exhibit good self-control, whereas future-mindedness will facilitate self-control regulation. So they do recognize that aspect of things. But I can tell you how you and me can develop self-control. This presentation would not be complete without it. The Bible says, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and the he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Now this quote is commented on by Ellen White in the book My Life Today. Right after that quote of that text, she says, he has conquered self the strongest foe man has to meet. The highest evidence of nobility in a Christian is self-control. He who can stand unmoved amid a storm of abuse is one of God's heroes. He who has learned to rule his spirit will rise above the slights, the rebuffs, the annoyances to which we are daily exposed, and these will cease to cast a gloom over his spirit. Now she's talking about the effects of it. We're not going to be so downtrodden in regards to the little negative things or even sometimes negative things that affect us. We're not going to have that gloominess. It is God's purpose that the kingly power of sanctified reason controlled by divine grace shall bear sway in the lives of human beings. He who rules his spirit is in possession of this power. The man or woman who preserves the balance of the mind when tempted to indulge passion stands higher in the sight of God and heavenly angels than the most renowned general that ever led an army to battle and to victory. Wow. You take the most famous sports hero in this world that we all honor, the best general or the most, you know, the ultimate, you know, fighter, etc. There's someone that is of far greater value in God's eyes. And that is the man or woman who preserves the balance of the mind when tempted to indulge passion. Self-control. We're given a promise for those who have given their life to the Lord. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted. How? Above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. By the way, in the context when you read this in 1 Corinthians 10, this is a promise only given to those who've given their life to the Lord. Those who have not given their life to the Lord are constantly tempted above what they're able and they fall repeatedly. How to develop self-control. 
If you have your Bibles there in Romans 7, we quit in 7.24, but 25 says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And now Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Comprehensive self-control is what Romans 8 is about. Ellen White comments and says, what young men and women need is Christian heroism. To rule the spirit means to be kept under self-discipline. Then she tells us how. God's abounding love and presence in the heart will give the power of self-control. Isn't that a wonderful statement? God's abounding love and presence in the heart will give the power of self-control and will mold and fashion the mind and character. The grace of Christ in the life will direct the aims and purposes and capabilities who channel into channels that will give moral and spiritual power, power which the youth will not have to leave in this world, but which they can carry with them into the future life and retain through the eternal ages. My Life Today, page 70. Christ said, by this all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have what? love one to another. By the way, there's a connection with another self aspect of things. We talked about two aspects of self at the beginning. If we would be true lights in the world, we must manifest the loving, compassionate spirit of Christ. To love as Christ loved means that we must practice what? Self-control. It means that we must show unselfishness at all times and in all places. There's another character attribute character, strength, and virtue that's been studied. It's called altruism, and that's called self-sacrificing love. Now, they looked at, as mentioned, lots of positive things in regards to self-control, but there was a few things that were not related to self-control, high scores. And what's interesting is what was not related to that in a positive way was related to compassionate love self-sacrificing love for others. That's also been studied. So the key to self-control is actually, Ellen White tells us, self-sacrifice. Self-sacrificing love. She goes on to say, it means that we must scatter around us kind words and pleasant looks. These cost the giver nothing, but they leave behind a precious fragrance. Their influence for good cannot be estimated, not only to the receiver, but to the giver they are a blessing, for they react upon him. Genuine love is a precious attribute of what? Heavenly origin. In other words, it comes from outside ourselves, which increases in fragrance in proportion as it is dispensed to others. You want more of Christ's love? Exhibit the amount that God has given you, that precious attribute that will increase. She goes on to say the little attentions, the small acts of love and self-sacrifice that flow out from the life as quietly as the fragrance from a flower, these constitute no small share of the blessings and happiness of life. 
Well, here's what Character, Strengths, and Virtues says, this secular book. Kindness, generosity, nurturance, care, compassion, empathy, altruistic love are a network of closely related terms indicating a common orientation of self toward the other. They contrast it with solipsism. What is solipsism? The orientation can be contrasted with solipsism in which self relates to others only insofar as they contribute to his or her agenda and are therefore considered useful. So that is not self-sacrificing love. That's somewhat the opposite. They go on to say, kindness and altruistic love require the assertion of a common humanity in which others are worthy of attention and affirmation for no utilitarian reason but for their own sake. The effective or emotional ground for such kindness distinguishes it from merely a dutiful or principle-based respect for other persons. Often we speak of self-sacrificing love. Yes, it is a principle and yes, it is a duty. But there's also a feeling that's associated with it. That kindness, where others are worthy of attention and affirmation for no utilitarian reason but for their own sake. They're a child of God. Such affective states give rise to helping behaviors that are not based on an assurance of reciprocity, relational gain, or any other benefits to self. Secular and devotional literature from around the world are replete with stories of individuals who experience changes in their personality, well-being, and goals after receiving altruistic love from another person. So what does this show? It not only helps you, it changes others. Now here's the sad statement these secular psychologists write after that. However, we know very little about the transforming power of such acts of altruism. Here's what they say. Despite the massive literature on moral development and education and guidance, surprisingly little seems to be known about how to encourage kindness and altruism directly. This oversight, they say, is what? Astonishing. There's massive literature in regards to the benefits of altruism. And they talk about moral development and education and guidance. By the way, if your children are in an educational institution, is that educational institution improving their self-control and self-sacrifice? Or is it threatening it? True education will encourage, foster, and develop in the student self-control and self-sacrificing love. Studies that evaluate the effectiveness of interventions for encouraging kindness in the context of parenting, mentoring, and education, they say, would be what? Most welcome. We want more studies. We want to see the difference. We'd like to produce some of those studies for them. That's one of the advantages of being president of Weimar where we encourage that academic excellence, but also encourage these aspects of, the, of um, self-control and self-sacrifice. Well, I'd like to go into some examples of self-control and some contrasts in self-control. This is a quote from the pen of Ellen White. Paul before Nero, how striking the contrast. She was shown the picture of Paul and Nero together in the same room. And she talks about the contrast. In power and greatness, Nero stood unrivaled. But Paul was without many, without friends, and without counsel. You know, he wasn't even allowed an attorney. He had no friends with him. He talks about in, in 2 Timothy, he was there alone, by himself. 
Without money, without friends, without counsel, Paul had been brought forth from a dungeon to be tried for his life. The countenance of the monarch bearing the shameful record of the passions that raged within. So the countenance can even show these things. The countenance of the prisoner telling the story of a heart at peace with God and with man. The results of opposite systems of education stood that day contrasted. A life of unbounded self-indulgence and a life of entire self-sacrifice. You could even see it in the environment in the room. Here were the representatives of two theories of life, all absorbing selfishness, which counts nothing too valuable to be sacrificed for momentary gratification, and self-denying endurance, ready to give up life itself, if need be, for the good of others. What a contrast. And then she says, if the soul is to be purified and ennobled and made fit for the heavenly courts, there are two lessons to be learned. And by the way, we talked about the two systems of salvation. There's true salvation and false salvation. By the way, the, uh, the devil loves you to receive false salvation because you don't think you need anything else. But if you don't think you need anything else, you're not going to sense that need and you're going to be lost. So false salvation is dangerous than recognizing you're in an unsaved state. But you know, sometimes we as Seventh-day Adventists look at the world at large and we say, and it's, it's a true statement, are there going to be people in heaven who have never kept the Sabbath? Yeah. There's going to be a lot of people in heaven who've never kept the Sabbath. Are there going to be people in heaven who have not been a vegetarian? Yes, there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that way. Are there going to be people in heaven who have eaten unclean meat until the day they die? Absolutely. And so sometimes we think, well, why is Adventism all that important? You know, those aren't, aren't salvational issues per se. They're, um, you know, and so we try to think that, you know, maybe this uh, whole movement is not that important. And sometimes we just stress the importance by saying this way. Well, if we keep the Sabbath, it's a tremendous blessing. And by the way, is it a blessing? It is a tremendous blessing. Everything that the Lord's will for us to do, if we do it, is going to be a blessing. Getting rid of unclean meats is a blessing. Going further and becoming a vegetarian is a tremendous blessing. The consequences, science has shown, the consequences are pretty positive. But often we just look at it from that standpoint. It's just a blessing to have the knowledge and follow the Lord's will as Adventism understands it from the Bible. But I present to you here today, it goes beyond that. The two lessons to be learned, to be made fit for the heavenly courts are this. Self-sacrifice and self-control. I submit to you today that 100% of individuals, 100% of individuals that are saved in the heavenly courts will have had self-control and self-sacrifice. Every single one of them. And that's one of the beauties of Adventism as well. We have more opportunities to test our self-control and our self-sacrifice. She says, some learn these important lessons more easily than do others, for they are exercised by the simple discipline the Lord gives them in gentleness and love. When we educate people well 
in the home and other ways. They can learn this more easily. Others require the slow discipline of suffering, that the cleansing fire may purify their hearts of pride and self-reliance, of earthly passion and self-love, that the true gold of character may appear and that they may become victors through the grace of Christ. Why do they have such suffering? It's a direct result of their lack of self-control. And so they review their life and their lack of self-control and all of this suffering in the Lord and mercy is trying to purify them and refine them and turn them to him. Some people ask, why the health message for these last days? I can tell you there's a wonderful reason. Why medical missionary work? True medical missionary work inspires self-sacrifice and self-control in the recipient. When you learn information about how caffeine is not good for you and you have a caffeine addiction and you give it up, you're exhibiting self-sacrifice and self-control, and I submit to you, you cannot do that without the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. The amazing thing about self-control and self-sacrifice is they don't come from within. They don't come from self. And this is something that some Christians don't understand as well. They think if they give their life to the Lord and they submit to the story of Christ and say, yes, I vote for Christ in my life, that the Lord will perform psychic surgery on them so that they'll never want to sin again. The Lord does not do that. The devil is enslaving people. He'll tempt you to exercise your free will to go his way, and then he'll enslave you so that that choice is removed from you, and you run into that pattern of addiction. But the Lord's way, when he brings help, his help is so that your mind can be balanced to exhibit self-control. That's what conversion is, is to have that mind balanced so that that self-control and self-sacrifice is there. Not only does true medical missionary work inspire self-sacrifice and self-control in the recipient, it involves self-sacrifice and self-control in the missionary worker. And that's why it's a particularly uh, applicable to these last days. So there's two psychological emotional attributes present in 100% of individuals eternally saved, self-control, self-sacrifice, and ironically, they both come from outside of self. I don't know why it got put that way. The F should be on the other side. Ironically, they both come from outside of self. The grace of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And that's what, if we would just do studies on that alone, we could fill this book with lots of examples. They say they don't know how self-control is, is developed. That's how it's developed. It's plain and simple. Now, everyone in this room has challenges with self-control and self-sacrifice. I have challenges with it. You have challenges with it. Why do I know that you have challenges with it? Because you're a human being. Plain and simple. We all have challenges with it. But I submit to you in fact, this is, this is quite a fearful statement. We talked about those in prison, the murder, the crime rate, the, the, the lack of health problems, et cetera, that, or I should say lack of health that people exhibit due to lack of self-control and relationship problems, et cetera. And you know, in the hospital, sometimes these people are ridiculed that are 30-year-old alcoholics and have cirrhosis of the liver, and they know that they should give it up, and they're not giving it up, and they've been in and out of prison and those type of things, and the world tends to look poorly on those individuals. But this is a solemn statement from the pen of Ellen White. The strongest bulwark of vice in our world is not the iniquitous life of the abandoned sinner or the degraded outcast. 
That's not the strongest bulwark of vice in our world. The strongest bulwark of vice is the ad of a life which otherwise appears virtuous, honorable, and noble, but in which one sin is fostered, one vice indulged. That's the strongest bulwark of vice. These people may even give money to worthy causes. They may appear on the surface to be great individuals, but they think in their case this one sin is okay in their particular case. Because I've got all of this, you know, this is going to be all right. I love this vice. And, and, you know, it's not good for other people per se. But in my case, I think it's okay. And maybe sometimes, you know, some, some, some solution will come around. True self-control and true self-sacrifice is comprehensive. It doesn't leave it out. We need Christ. If you are in that situation, you need to go to the foot of the cross and give your life completely to Christ. Choose comprehensive self-control. Even the psychologists tell us there's no downside to self-control. Real self-sacrifice. Give yourself fully, completely, and continually to Christ. I will close with the last words of Paul that he wrote. Paul, this great example of self-sacrifice and self-control, wrote to Timothy in his last letter, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love, meaning agape love and self-control. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for your willingness to give us your spirit of grace, your abounding love in the heart. We acknowledge, Lord, our challenges. We acknowledge our own inability to manufacture that true love that comes from you. But we open our hearts and minds now to receive that love into our life. We come to the foot of the cross once more, not to just vote for you, but to let you transform us into your likeness. For you exhibited self-control and self-sacrifice at every step. May we, Lord, recognize the value of these things, recognize the curse of turning away, but we thank you most of all for what you have exhibited on our behalf, your life of righteousness. And we now exchange our clothing of rags for your clothing of that wedding garment that will be exhibited in its effects, self-control and self-sacrifice at every step. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.